0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
3: Hello, naturalists, poets, and writers in search of meaning and consequence. Welcome, welcome. I'm Brooke Warner, and I'm here with my co host, Grant Faulkner. Grant, today's show, we're going to try to attempt to draw listeners into a non-technological world where there's no electricity and no power. We're going to invite listeners into the journey of their imagination, uh, though this was really the very real everyday life of our guest, Baron Wormser, for nearly a quarter of a century. I read this memoir uh, that we're going to be talking about with him. Uh, It's called The Road Washes Out in Spring. And I read it with great interest and honestly enchantment because it's such an atypical story. Uh, The book was originally published in 2006 and Barron lived in the woods of Maine from the 1970s through the 90s. Uh, And I went into the book thinking, you know, I could breeze through it and capture the gist of it. But as soon as I started, I saw what a deep meditation the book really is. Its subtitle is A Poet's Memoir of Living Off the Land. And so it feels to me the only way to properly honor this book and its author is to slow down our pace today a little bit, to talk about the ruminative, reflective, meditative nature of certain kinds of writing. And so I wanted to start here. And Grant, I'm curious, do you think? It takes having a slow and deep inner life to be able to write in this kind of style, that ruminative, reflective style, or does the writing in that way, uh, you know, kind of affect the state of mind <laughs> in a way that helps you like beckon it or I guess cultivate it in, in a certain kind of way.
1: I think this is such an interesting question. I think somebody could write a whole book on this question, and I would read it. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm tempted to say that one's prose, you know, the way it moves, whether it jump cuts or meanders or gets distracted or digs deep, is reflective of the state of the author's mind. And I I think that has to be the case up to a point. But yeah, at the same time, when I think of myself, I change when I sit down to write, you know, and I've said this in past episodes, but I don't exactly like my mental state these days. I'm distracted and anxious and I'm always looking for new stimulation. And I have the mind that a lot of us have, you know, an an online mind that has experienced too much scrolling and too much stress. But when I sit down to write, it's like an invocation. It's like a prayer, you know, it allows me to focus and slow down and be really reflective, So in the end, I I think you can beckon a state of mind with writing just as you can through meditation or exercise or things like that. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I've experienced it myself. You know, and with this book, despite the subtitle telling me that Barron is a poet, I was nevertheless not expecting the book to be as poetic as it is. I don't know why. <laughs> so it was kind of a surprise, a delightful one. At that, uh, we've talked on past shows about the ways that poetry is foundational to other genres. So when poetry shows up in fiction or in memoir, is it's not surprising, of course, it's sort of built upon a, a genre of poetry. But it does sometimes automatically make the work more literary, maybe more meditative. But whether you're born Born with an awareness of the poeticism of everyday life, or whether you cultivate it, it seems to me it's pretty key to living a writerly life. So I'm a person who's taking my first foray into a genre that's asking a lot more of me than my previous self help books have, for instance, I'm good at thought pieces the polemics that i like to publish you know this is the kind of work that i've published on substack recently and over the years on publishers weekly and huffington post but to write fiction or memoir there's really a different level of attunement required and it's not just attunement to your story but the attunement to the world around you right so that you can take what you observe and find ways to infuse meaning into your work you know through whatever words you you use to articulate both plot and meaning and I was observing this as I was taking in Baron's words, you know, this extraordinary attunement to his environment and the world around him. Uh, and, you know, it's like a world that is both vast and small to live off the grid in this kind of way. It's such a specific choice. And many people might think that it's too limiting, too small, too difficult. I certainly would feel that way. But what he offers in this book is not that at all. I mean, he's going to talk about this in the interview. You know, he says it's not like it was some sort of punishment. You know, he he's very attuned to his environment in a way that I think most of us have actually shut out or can't absorb anymore because of our busyness. And I'm I just am curious how you feel about all that, Grant. You know, it's like we're in constant motion and I wonder at what cost.
1: Yeah. I love this topic of attunement, Brooke. And I noticed that in uh, so many of the passages in Barron's book, you know, he, he writes a lot about trees and woods and He's living in the woods. He's surrounded by woods. He spent a lot of time splitting wood. And in fact, he says in the book that his favorite task was splitting wood. And even here, we see how drawn he is to the meditative. He, he, he writes, I'm going to read one passage. In the midst of my work in the woods, I often took time to stare at the duff and the miracle of dissolution. It was slow, beautiful magic. Everything, leaves, needles, trees, plants, corpses became the precious crumble of soil. As fascinations went, it was One, I kept to myself. I realized that rot didn't do much for most people. Despite the brute strength involved and metal clangor, splitting wood was meditative. And and it seems to me that, you know, our modern culture leaves precious little time to do what he's talking about here, you know, which is really just to stare at something and to get lost in the fascination of something. And, you know, on that note, like I've tried to create small spaces in my life for this. And I made the goal this fall to collect things on my walks, you know, things like leaves and flowers and berries to to make these like little Ichabana flower displays. I once took an Ichabana class and, and I did it two or three times, but I was surprised by how challenging it was to make this a regular practice. And again, it's the pressure of my life, which is a shame. Uh, it's it's something I think a lot about because, you know, I think there's something I've lost in essentially the, the metaphor of not chopping wood. And uh, this even reminded me a little bit of our interview with Peggy Ornstein about how she set out to knit a sweater in her memoir, Unraveling, and covered all that goes into a single sweater, including shearing sheep and how that changed
3: her. Right. It's so true, except that Baron did that for 25 years. It's yeah. so wild. Uh, and reading this book it made me nostalgic at times, sad even for how much we've lost in the push of the busyness of our lives. You know, I wake up in the morning churning over my to-do list and I can never even get through it on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, we just sacrifice a lot for that. And Barron writes about the ways of country folk, you know, how they pop in and visit each other, something I would not dare do in the city, you know, just come by unannounced. I don't think I have a single friend who would really appreciate that. But, you know, as to places where I I, Do just stop and stare and get lost. I can say it's in reading. Uh, You know, this memoir of his actually is exemplary of that because um, of what I mentioned before. Like, I'm a pretty good speed reader, and I think we have to be given the work that we do. So I can get through a book pretty fast, um, usually, if it's a matter of just kind of scratching the surface of the story. But you can't do that when you're really taking in a story, right? Or if a book that uh, is particularly meditative or poetic, it it will make you miss too much if you do that. And so um, I I just like that certain books and reading in general forces slowing down and asks you to absorb. And I see that as a real gift of words, you know, especially a certain way of writing, uh, that kind of meditative, slower writing, which is the very topic we're circling today. So um, I, I just wanted to punctuate that, I guess. Writing that exists not necessarily to forward plot, which I usually call meditative or reflective writing, is really central to takeaway, which is something we've talked about on the show, something that I teach in my memoir classes. Um, You know, and Barron writes uh, in his book, the household we founded was an attempt to live a poem I just love that, and in some ways, the experience of reading this book was that too. you know, like a suspended experience of being inside a poem uh, and And I like that too, because so much of the time I think we're writing for well, in memoir, I can say this grant, you know, we're writing for what happened and not enough about like just writing about the wonderment of what we're saying here, like stopping and staring and being in wonderment. And it's a lofty goal for any writer to achieve that and want. To have, you know, for the readers, I guess, to want to stay with you in that experience, but it is a gift when you can do that. There's master storytelling, and then there's master philosophizing and and ruminating. and, And I just appreciate that so much in this kind of work.
1: I feel like you're falling into a poetic rhapsody <laughs> in talking about this work. And and one I, I just want to say the phrase, the household we founded was an attempt to live a poem really struck me. And I, I read the poet uh, Gary Snyder's description of his house, which he built on the Yuba River in the northern Sierra Nevada mountains. I don't know when uh, – several decades ago, and, and he talks about the things he builds and the objects he uses in his daily life with a kind of reverence that is almost sacred. So his the objects he lives with are like an attempt to live a poem, I think. I think that's a nice way to put it and it also made me think of Wendell Berry the poet who's also a farmer and who writes really insightfully and thoughtfully about nature and organic farming and living according to your ideals and against the modern way of life which he actually views as a as a skein of violence and his lyric poetry often appears as a as a as a kind of contemporary elegy i think but but to go back to your original question i think these writers prose is infused with their spirit you know you feel their lives and views on the page you enter their prayer, so to speak, their invocation, and you get a nice taste of their lives. Even even if you are living a busy, distracted, you know, maddening life like like both of us do, I think <laughs> you mentioned that too. That it's 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 one purpose of reading is for that um, attunement and that paying attention, uh, because reading allows me to enter a more gentle space. And e- even though I know I'll never chop too much wood or become a farmer, it's nice to experience you know the beat of their heart while they're doing that for a spell.
3: Yeah, so true, Grant. And once again, I think we're we're circling the power of reading and how it informs us as writers. And every time I read something new that I love, um, it, it resets the bar a little higher, makes me realize how much I want to be proud of the work that I'm doing, you know, the writing that I'm doing and how much I love and care about, you know, the work and also how it might reach potential readers in the future. And one of the beautiful things about good writing is the the constant ahas that you have when someone points something out, right? Like these experiences of truth. And I was thinking about this because, you know, Baron is writing about the country life and teaching us how consequential our endeavors are. Things like, cutting the wood, you know, and all the things like things that I haven't done, but I took those moments of his reflection on consequence and attentiveness and applied it to my own life and my own writing. Uh, and and then that in tune causes me to be more attuned, right, and to sort of cultivate more experience. And so these are just, you know, aspects of, of reading and writing that are so profound. And I'm curious, Grant, before we close, are there aspects of your writing life that you know you're more attuned to than others, you know, or a place? where you might share where you would like to be better attuned?
1: Yeah, I, I guess I, you know writing is attunement <laughs> just just by its definition I think and I often advise writers to write about you know why they write because I think having a purpose is an invitation to the page and knowing that purpose can help you when you're facing rough spots or experiencing rejection um, and one of my purposes for writing is that the act of writing helps me to notice and to notice myself and the world around me and the way I move through it all and I, I think of Mary Oliver's famous statement that attention is the beginning of devotion and I, I I love thinking about this phrase with regularity because if, if we pay attention mostly to our to-do list, then, then that's what we're devoted to, you know, sometimes without even questioning it. So so, so it begs the question of, of what we want our lives to be devoted to. And it, it can be a troubling question, but hopefully – By paying attention to our attention, which is kind of like what we do with writing, we devote ourselves more consciously to the things that we we think are important. So this is a great topic and one that I've been thinking about a lot lately. So I, I look forward to hearing and learning more from Baron after this short break.
3: Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Baron Wormser. Barron is the author of 20 books and has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. From 2000 to 2005, he served as Poet Laureate of the State of Maine. He is the founding director of the Frost Place Conference on Poetry and Teaching. Essays of his have been included in many, many places, including Best American Essays 2014 and 2018. He's, As I said, he's written Many books, 20 books. Uh, And the books that we're going to be talking about primarily today, Baron, is The Road Washes Out in Spring, your memoir. Uh, The subtitle is A Poet's Memoir of Living Off the Grid. Welcome, Baron. Thank you for having me. It's a beautiful and poetic memoir. And one of the things that Grant and I focused in on in reading your book was this experience of attunement, living as you did in the woods. And we talked about this a little before you came on, uh, that you lived out rurally off the grid for 25 years, you write about being attuned to everything. And I'm assuming you kind of have to be that there's a way that living that way heightens the senses. But you're also a poet. And so it occurred to me that you're naturally attuned to your environment in that way to metaphor to meaning. So I want to start by asking you to respond to that a little bit. Like, is that attunement that I was picking up on? a practice of yours or an orientation for your life or for writing your work in particular?
2: Well, uh, poetry, uh, one of my definitions of uh, poetry is that it, what, what it is um, about is what I call the thrill of being. Nothing has to happen for there to be uh, poetry Every day we carry around a a big bag of purposes as human beings, but poetry doesn't really need that. Uh, Poetry's uh, happy that a flower is a flower, night is night, tree is a tree, a child is a child. So, uh, So there is, in that sense, a sort of primal attunement that goes with poetry. Then when you live the way we lived for a long time, you wind up with this earth attunement because that's how you're living. Uh, when it gets dark, you you uh, you have to light a lamp. You don't hit a switch. If you want to be warm, you have to start a fire. Uh, so various matters that are uh, pretty basic matters for us as human beings in terms of our, our senses go with this sort of attunement. So so the two fit together, so to speak, as far as poetry is concerned and a life on the earth is concerned, which is reflected in traditional societies uh, all over the planet for thousands of years in terms of the connection between poetry and, and the earth. So that's what I'd say, yes.
1: Well, Baron, we noticed that you, you didn't have chapter titles in the book and so I'm I'm curious that made me curious about how you would describe your structure. And it made me think, you know, the book kind of felt like a almost like an epic poem. So can you speak to the construction of this book, especially in light of being a poet and then the difference between long and short form writing?
2: Yes, I can. Uh when you write a memoir, I've taught taught a lot uh as far as memoir writing is concerned. One of the challenges you, anybody faces is is what is your unit for, the, um, for telling your story? And uh, it varies wildly from person to person. Uh, for me, uh, my unit was what you see there, about three or so pages, basically. And I wanted to give people a sense of, of the whole. I wanted it to be, uh, you know, kind of a river. I wanted it to be, you know, I, I always say about poetry, it, it, it looks linear, but it isn't. <laughs> it's omnidirectional. It's going in all directions at the same time, simultaneously. I wanted the book to be like that too. So, so I didn't want it to be broken up, chopped up in terms of uh, headaches. I wanted it to be an experience for the reader that was a whole, W-H-O-L-E. And so I, I didn't I didn't want to uh, delimit that, so to speak, in terms of the reader's, you know, experience that way. So that's why I wound up just writing it as sort of how you have to read it. Kind of a straight shot. Uh, I've done a couple other books that way, too. Uh, It's kind of natural when you're a poet, I think, because, I mean, uh, you know, we have that phrase, stream of consciousness, and that's what a poem is. You just get on this little stream and off you go, or as you say, it, <laughs> you get on, uh, you know, the Odyssey and you're on a big stream, an epic stream.
3: I really enjoyed it and um, found uh, the, the metaphor of a river is is perfect. <laughs> it, it does feel that way, and and yet they're these little contained units. And like you said, so I'll I'll be using that one uh, in my teaching. I think, you know, you write about the idea of the endeavors of a person living off the land. You talk about it as being consequential. Um, the cutting of the wood, the wrong length, for instance, and it doesn't fit in the stove. Uh, and recently. Mrs. Carter died. As people know, I, I heard people say she had a consequential life. And I, I just thought this was so interesting, the juxtaposition, you know, the small consequences of something like cutting the wood the wrong size and someone like Mrs. Carter having a consequential life. And so maybe it's about a continuum. Uh, but it strikes me that we live in this world where people really long to be consequential, but they don't always have the wherewithal to do this like practice of the consequential work. And I just wondered if you would comment on that.
2: Sure, it works in a in a very simple way, as you pointed out about the wood in in terms of attentiveness, basically. Which one way or another, we're doing as as, as human beings each day in terms of our uh, our our actions. Uh, but there's there're obviously larger dimensions to that. I mean, certainly uh, what we're up against uh, as human beings. In terms of whatever words we want to use, whether we want to use uh, consequences, karma, fate, whatever we want to talk about as human beings. But the fact is, uh, you know, each of us is the result of of all sorts of consequences, not the least of which are historical. I mean, if, you know, we're born to certain people at a certain time and that that is, so to speak, who we are. Uh, in terms of consequences, and uh, among other things, I find that very humbling, in a real, in a good sense of the word, because it, it makes us aware of just how utterly contingent we are as human beings. Not the least of which is the Earth, in terms of the the consequences that go, you know, with the Earth. I mean, the aquifers are finite. Uh, there are limitations, and those limitations are consequential. Obviously, we seem to have a hard time uh, facing up to that. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's a very real word. And for me, in terms of my writing, that's sort of what I've been writing about for decades, basically, is this issue of, of consequences and how that plays out in history and in our, in our dealings with the earth.
1: I love that. Just a meditation on consequences and a probing of it constantly. And you ask a beautiful question in your book, you know, do you dare to accept the sufficiency of the earth? And this is in a part of the book where you ruminate about the row. And you specifically make a point that your choice to live in this way was not ideological. But I'm, but I'm thinking we live in a different world now than the world that existed when you first decided to do this with your wife in the 70s. And I'm curious, would you say that you accepted the sufficiency of the earth by living in this way for 25 years? And what lesson would you impart to its inhabitants today in 2023 from this time you spent in the woods?
2: Yeah, I, I, would, I would say that we learned to accept that sufficiency. And uh, you know, all I can say about where we're at now is uh, we better learn to accept the sufficiency and uh, start to realize that basically that needs to, so to speak, organize our lives, period. Um, if we intend to hang around here any longer because we're not doing that and it, it, in so many ways that what we've created and by we, I mean planetary and I just be this country uh, in terms of technology, politics, religion all sorts of things that go feed into that we're not doing that uh, and we, you know, unfortunately as probably you've read the overstory by richard powers and uh, that novel and one of the characters says at one point we're doubling down on the status quo so not, <laughs> not only are we we take it, not taking our foot off the pedal we're putting our foot down more on the pedal and that's obviously uh upsetting so uh but you know the the thing is um which i hope the book makes plain is um You know, the way we lived, it wasn't any kind of penalty or anything like that. It wasn't any kind of, you know, I don't know what shortcoming or, you know, thing we did to ourselves in terms of denying ourselves. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, it worked the other way. You know, what we experienced was the richness of being on the earth, period, which is just the basic extraordinary experience that we're all to use that verb people use nowadays, gifted each day. There it is. So yeah, it's it has a lot of sufficiency to offer.
3: Well, I hope that will be a, a good plug for reading the book, Baron, because it just Really made me think about the world in a different way, you know what you chose to do, and it it didn 't at all read like a penalty you know instead, I really felt like gosh i 'm missing out on some things uh, and it 's pretty profound, just the way we live versus the way you lived uh, during that time. I, I do want to pivot and ask you about the Frost Place Conference on Poetry and Teaching. You're the founder. Uh, you reference Frost and many other poets in this book. Gosh, you write beautifully about Emily Dickinson. Um, you write about Thoreau. Clearly, you've been influenced by many poets. But could you talk about your affection for Frost and why you named your center after him?
2: Well, the center was already named, ah. so I I came to the center. The center is uh, in Franconia, New Hampshire. And it's it's one of the houses that Frost lived in uh, after after actually, actually after he came to the states um, around the time of World War One, returned from England, and found himself an acclaimed poet. In the United states uh, but i 've lived my life my adult life in northern new England, and i 've lived it in rural areas so it's it 's natural that uh Frost would be you know an enormous poet uh for me in that regard, so I could talk about Frost for for a long time, but he has uh he' spent a great a great deal to me. I actually wrote an essay at one point. Uh, called The Drama of Encounter, uh, which for me is sort of the heart of Frost's poetry, where he's this human being who's encountering whatever he encounters out there in the world and registering the sort of drama about how that encounter changes him. So uh, a, po- a famous poem like The Wood Pile or... You know the the poem where you know he's with his horse and wondering you know <laughs> what to do about the snow and the horse, and you know that's all just this basic instinctual drama that Frost was able to tap into about being here on earth and all these situations that uh that spoke to him and and spoke spoke for him and and in that way, he's certainly connected to the tradition of of Thoreau uh, in terms of nature, the earth, speaking to him, speaking for him, speaking through him, all the above.
1: Well, Barron, shifting into the very presentness of the present day, you know, today, a lot of the the ways that young poets and young writers in general are breaking out and being noticed is on Instagram and TikTok, And, um, you know, reading your book is not only go, going back in time to an earlier era, but also a time before times before the internet, before all the pressure of social media. So I'm very curious about your ideas about social media as a platform for poetry. You know, is it this kind of big campfire of storytelling and sharing uh, a mechanism of attunement? And, and I'm just curious, do you publish your own poetry in, in digital form?
2: Yeah, uh, obviously it's the way the world has gone uh, a lot. So, uh, so certainly some of my work appears on digital form. Um I mean, you know, a pencil is technology. Uh, you know, if you write on a pad of paper, it's made in a factory somewhere that used technology. So I don't, I don't have any. I don't know how to say hang-ups about technology per se. I have a big hang-up when people consider it an end in itself as opposed to a means. I think uh, that's (laughs) that's not good. Um, But as far as just using it, as I say, I mean, I had a pump in the house. That was technology. (laughs) It's low-tech, but it's still technology. It's obviously when people sort of idolize it or whatever the hell they're doing with it that way, where it it seems to become, I don't know, the sum of life somehow. That's obviously pretty sad. And obviously, if it turns people away from the earth, um, that's pretty sad, too. Probably you've read about, you know, the cobalt mining in places like the Democratic Congo Republic, where all these people are. It's horrendous in terms of their lives. That's all. That's all goes into these phones. We don't need those phones. They could all disappear tomorrow. We'd still be able to be human beings. So I, I think you know we all have to face up to that, basically, in terms of the cost for the Earth and what are we doing, basically, in, in, in that in that regard. But I don't have any animus per se about you know technology. I mean, you read Walden. There's Thoreau looking at the train, right, going down, you know, right by the right by the cabin. I mean, okay, this is something obviously we're good at as human beings. The huge question is obviously what are we what are we doing with it? That's the huge question.
3: Thank you, Baron. It's a uh, I, I appreciate hearing your words, just in terms of the the thought that you've given to all of these topics. And I, I thought it would be fun for our listeners to know that your daughter, Maisie, actually pitched your work to us. Uh, and the reason her pitch stood out among the countless that we get, especially from publicists, honestly, was its authenticity. Uh, I, I appreciated her letter so much. I also have a 12-year-old son. He's soon to be 13. And you write about raising your kids off the grid, you know, in the woods in Maine. Uh, so I wanted to just ask you, a, a parent, Parenting question, actually, a parenting piece of this story. What wisdom do you have to impart uh, on nature's impact on how your own kids turned out? And maybe what advice would you have to me, you know, raising a kid who is kind of caught up in spending too much time online, as they all are?
2: Well, wisdom is uh, <laughs> that's a big word <laughs> for any parent to use. Uh, I would never go so far um, as to use that word as a parent, honestly. I think the way it worked out for for our kids actually is that um, it did give them something in terms of of connecting them to the earth in a basic way. The big challenge is obviously, what do you go do with that as an adult? This society is not this. You know, it's about technology, it's about money, it's about celebrity, it's about entertainment, it's about a billion things. It's not particularly about the earth. So so that's been a challenge, honestly, for both our kids. You know, there was a whole kind of simplicity, again, and purity of kind of way we live. That's not what's being touted um in terms of, of our society. Obviously, one thing they did learn though is they have a strong sense of being able to take care of themselves. They could be by themselves and it doesn't frighten them. <laughs> they, they, so they're they're not you know they don't feel if tomorrow you know the phones go away or you know whatever it's not the quotes end of the world uh, you can go on living so I think I think that's that's a gift in that way but you know I have to say in terms I mean we had you read the book we had a boombox hooked up to a car battery that could hear Bruce Springsteen we had a <laughs> piano in the house we had music you know we had music. So it's not like they were cut off that way, you know, um, from the world. I mean, but obviously the whole thing now with the Internet is it's omnivorous. You know, I just, you know, you want it to take up every moment of your life. It's happy to do it.
3: Right. So that's obviously
2: very different from how we live.
3: Baron, thank you. Thanks for this interview and thanks for your work in the world. You are welcome. It's been a pleasure to be
2: with you two today. Thanks for having me
1: likewise baron i really appreciate it we'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break
3: Grant, I loved seeing this story in The Economist last month that small publishers are sweeping the Booker and Nobel Prizes. Uh, and this is triumphant news because it shows, albeit anecdotally, that what we talk about on this show is true, which is that the consolidation of book publishing and a lot of the choices that the Big Five makes don't necessarily translate into them knowing which books are going to resonate with readers. And so this is our trend this week.
1: Uh, it's a good one because you know my affection for small presses. I think and I think, you know, I think writers need to know, actually, um, that editors at big publishers, you know, they aren't necessarily charged with finding books that have the most literary merit, but finding books that have commercial potential. And small presses tend to be the opposite, which is why I think they're publishing, you know, just in general, more interesting stories, more interesting material. Not necessarily, of course, but but that is just generally their their, you know, that's their charge. And unfortunately, they oftentimes don't get the attention they deserve because marketing budgets often determine, you know, things like book reviews and influence book awards. So it's especially gratifying to see this story in The Economist. The article did note, though, that the big five publishers, which are Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, Hachette, and Macmillan, you know, still dominate the market. They still um, have 60% of sales. And and those houses are not only, you know, pushing out a lot of books, but also a, a lot of the more commercial books that are selling in the thousands and tens of thousands.
3: Right. Yeah. And that always be the case given the muscle and the money that they can put behind their projects and because they're publishing people who are already famous whether those are household authors or celebrities uh, which is why the acknowledgement by these prize committees is such a big deal and the economist writer points out that uh, the large staff and large budgets do not always translate into quality I, I certainly know that to be true The Booker Prize this year and last year went to authors published on relatively small presses. Uh, Last year, Norton, uh, and this year, Grove Atlantic, and so that's very exciting. The article also mentions the Nobel Prize, and interestingly, one small press in the UK. Fitzcarraldo editions uh, has generated four of the past nine laureates and we did cover them earlier this year when we talked about Annie Ernaux who won the Nobel and was much celebrated for being the first memoirist to do so.
1: Yeah, I also appreciate that the article covered something that seems counterintuitive, but true, which is that these wins seem to stem from explicitly not thinking about the money. You're <laughs> right, Brooke. This does just entirely validate us, which is why we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, big publishers actually don't have that luxury. They've hemmed themselves in in such a way that their decisions are all about the money. So they, they can't take the kinds of literary risks smaller publishers take. And I know you've experienced this firsthand when you worked in traditional publishing, Brooke.
3: Yeah, I did. And I was on the side of the small press, you know, the one that was able to take the risks and make the acquisitions for the love of the writing and the story. But my own journey was about how that changed for me when we got Uh, acquired by a larger entity so for us that was like 2008 ish when my beloved seal press got acquired by perseus uh, and now perseus is owned by hachette and i keep tabs on seal and they are publishing great books still but you can see how the sensibility has changed and and you know you see that like a press that once had such an indie sensibility just doesn't feel so indie anymore
1: yeah i can see that and I, i i think that's why this story is is meaningful these prizes and awards or nods to these indie presses, acknowledging that, you know, their instincts are good and we need small presses to be doing the work to acquire the books that the big five can't or won't. So a big shout out to all of the indies out there, you included, Brooke. And the exciting thing about publishing is its thriving ecosystem. You know, 60% of sales is big. It's dominant for sure. But it also shows that there's a lot of traction in the sector that's not attributed to the big five. And it feels like a win to all indies when the small presses get this kind of recognition. And that's why I really encourage readers to very intentionally check out small presses and support them. You know, they're they're a big underdog in this because their work doesn't get the splashy attention. And I can't tell you how many great novels have gone probably mostly unread because reviewers simply don't look for or find small press work. Um, and that's simply just because of the avalanche of marketing that, that, that books from bigger publishers receive.
3: Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Grant. And, you know, with these prizes, <laughs> I noticed myself feeling a kind of pride, even though they're not my books winning the prizes, because it makes me feel like the work that small publishers are doing is reaching its readers. And then that in turn is, it's well, it's validating, but it's important to remember, like, we're the ones who are able to take on the books that the big presses not only can't, but won't. And so it's a win to writers, too. I just want to say that. Uh Keep at it. This world is for you, too. Uh, and with that, we right-minded are also most definitely for you. We love hearing from you. We love hearing that you listen, that you're part of our community. So, thanks for the notes and the ratings and the check-ins. And we wish you a very inspirational week. We'll see you next time.